One of the greatest obstacles to crafting health and wellness is identifying and controlling inflammation. It's at the core of all complex and chronic diseases, and it's the driving mechanism that underlies the most common symptoms that people like you struggle to overcome. Join us as we explore cutting-edge science and research to give you the information and tools you need to create the quality of life you want and deserve. And now, here is the host of Inflammation Nation, Dr. Stephen Nosworthy. Hey there, and welcome back to the Inflammation Nation. We're going to continue our discussion now on uh, hormones focusing on cortisol. And last time we talked about busting the myth of uh, terms like uh, adrenal fatigue or adrenal exhaustion. And if, if you did listen to that, fantastic. You'll remember that really when we look at saliva testing that assesses the function of the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis or the HPA axis, we're really looking at brain function because it's uh, two different parts of the brain that control the uh, the amount of cortisol that we're, is being produced as well as the circadian rhythm or the rhythm and timing of how that's being produced throughout the day. So if you missed that, go back and, and listen to that because I think it's pretty important. Um, still a ton of things to talk about with cortisol, mostly because, you know, not because of the peculiar nature of that hormone, but I think two reasons. Number one, um, cortisol is, is a a, a keystone hormone in survival mechanisms, right? It's part of your fight or flight response, which helps promote survival. That's kind of how we think of cortisol as your, your main stress hormone. Um, I, I call that the Superman role, right? You know, Superman's got two identities, right? Superman and Clark Kent. And cortisol's Clark Kent role is, is really in terms of uh, blood sugar regulation in the absence of some kind of a stress or emergency. That's the Superman role. And so, you know, cortisol almost always gets discussed in terms of fight or flight responses and almost always in terms of this, uh, you know, kind of mythological adrenal fatigue. Um, so let's talk about the primary role of cortisol, which is really to, to help regulate blood sugar. Again, under normal day-to-day -day circumstances, just waking up and going about your day, but also under periods of increased stress or even worse case scenario, like threat to your life, that kind of stuff. And in that sense, because cortisol is used to actually create blood sugar, create fuel to, to meet the demands of your day, whatever that looks like. And so in, the, in that sense, cortisol works similarly to the hormone glucagon that we also talked about before, and it's all part of a counter-regulatory system that includes uh, cortisol and glucagon working together to oppose the action of insulin, or we could say insulin opposes the action of glucagon and cortisol. And, and so just as general reminder, insulin is your storage hormone that takes your nutritional stuff, your fuel sources, and then um, stores those as body fat and fat tissue, or as something called glycogen, in your muscles and your liver. And, you know, you find it throughout the body, but mostly you're going to find glycogen in your muscles and in your liver. And basically all glycogen is, is a string of glucose molecules that are connected together. You know, there's, you know, 12 glucose polymers or 12 glucose units, let's call them, in um, uh, a single glycogen molecule, right? So basically it's 12 glucose molecules daisy chained together and stored as a future source of fuel. And so insulin stores things, fat as well as glycogen or glucose. And glucagon does the opposite. It liberates fats, free fatty acids from your body fat stores, um, liberates glycogen. So it takes glycogen out of the liver and breaks it apart. So you have glucose in your bloodstream now. 
Um, and it does those things predominantly during periods of fasting or not eating. And also as a reminder, right, the, the two main ways that we can control or increase our glucagon levels, which are advantageous to us in most cases, um, is through adequate protein intake as well as through fasting strategies. And so you kind of have to have those things in, in place um, as a foundational component to being able to control your energy flow. Let's just kind of use that that general uh, terminology. Um, and so, like I said earlier, cortisol supports glucagon and as such tends to oppose insulin, which I'm going to come back to in a moment. Let me define a couple of terms first. <clears throat> in the metabolic or the chemical processes that allow things like cortisol or glucagon to increase blood sugar availability. Because remember, you will have glucose in your bloodstream as a result of two general categories of things. Number one, consuming fuel, particularly carbohydrates, but also these underlying chemical reactions that are triggered by things like glucagon and insulin, which are triggered by things like stress or fasting. And those two mechanisms are called gluconeogenesis and glycogenolysis. They both have to do with glucose. And so essentially gluconeogenesis, making new glucose, happens when things like cortisol and glucagon trigger it. Basically what it does is it takes some select amino acids. Alanine is the most common one. And amino acids are the building blocks of protein. So it takes certain types of amino acid building blocks, uh, or it can take free fatty acids, whether that's from your diet or from breaking down body fat. And we can actually make glucose out of that through a multi-step chemical process. And so one way we can increase blood sugar without eating is through stress or through fasting strategies is to uh, drive gluconeogenesis and make new glucose. And we again, we do that without eating anything. The other part of this relationship is called glycogenolysis. And so I just defined glycogen as clumps, if you will, of stored glucose, mostly in your muscle and in your livers. And so glycogenolysis means breaking down glycogen. And so again, cortisol and uh, glucagon working together will break down your stored glucose. It will take those chains of glucose molecules and snip them up and put glucose into your bloodstream and voila, your blood sugar goes up even though you haven't eaten anything. And that actually is a good thing because we need to have some way to increase fuel availability. Not saying that glycogen or glucose is the only way we can fuel our system. That's a whole different conversation between glucose utilization and things like ketones and free fatty acids. We'll deal with that at, at some point in the future. But listen, as, as far back as 1979, we have studies that show when cortisol is infused into, and, and these were mostly done in animal models, when cortisol alone was infused into an animal, it had very little impact on blood sugar. Very little. As a general rule, we tend to understand and tend to teach that cortisol increases blood sugar by gluconeogenesis, making new glucose and glycogenolysis, or breaking down your stored glucose. But by itself, it really has very little impact which is kind of interesting. But when cortisol is added to glucagon, now all of a sudden we have a much greater impact on blood sugar, meaning that cortisol plus glucagon will increase your blood sugar to a rate that you don't see when you have the stress hormone glucose by itself. And you might think, well, that, that means I don't want stress and I don't want glucagon. Well, if you don't want glucagon, that means all you have to do is reduce your protein intake and, and eat constantly. 
and and that typically means you're going to be eating fats and carbohydrates all the time, which is a recipe to drive your insulin up, which means you're just basically going to get fat and insulin resistant and then walk yourself down the pathway of metabolic syndrome and potentially type 2 diabetes. And that's just not a good thing. So one of the caveats in this, and this just popped into my head, is that all of these systems that we're talking about are designed with a very eloquent, eloquent aspect of counter-regulation. And, and I would pause it and suggest that you think of it this way. There, there's no good hormone and there's no bad hormone. Everything serves a function and does different things under different circumstances. And one of the problems we run into is that we tend to pigeonhole things into uh, describing or thinking them of one way when in fact it, it's just not that simple. It's just not that simple. It makes it easy to have conversations or write a textbook or do a lecture, but it, it really is, it is a lot more complicated than that. Hi there, it's Dr. Noseworthy. I want to extend my appreciation to all of you in the Inflammation Nation who have helped my podcast become a great success in these first few months. I truly appreciate you. Also wanted to let you know about my brand new do-it-yourself online program called the five-step gut protocol. I designed this program for people who want to take charge of their own health and stop waiting around for someone else to tell them what to do. I've combined old naturopathic principles with cutting-edge research to create a truly unique program that will help you construct your own gut protocol. If you've ever wondered if you have gut infections, a leaky gut, or a bad microbiome, then this program will walk you through the steps to figure that out and gives you the tools that you need to formulate a practical strategy to help make things better. I guarantee at the end of this course, you'll know more about your gut than your doctor does, and you will feel confident that you know how to address your unique situation. You can check it out at my website at www.drnoseworthy.com. That's drnoseworthy.com. And just look for the tab at the top that says the programs. Thanks for listening. So back to, you know, some of the early research back going into the 1970s, cortisol by itself does not really give you an appreciable glucose response, but when you add it to glucagon, it does. And, and this is, this relationship is actually very important to understand because there are very, some very common things that we see in clinical practice and the people who are kind of trying to hack their biophysiology and work on their own health tend to see the same thing. For example, what, why do some people on low carb or ketogenic diets still have high blood sugar in the morning? If you get out on any of the discussion boards or comments on social media or YouTube channels, you'll see this question all the time. Like, you know, I'm, I'm in ketosis, my ketones are up, but my fasting blood sugar is always either high end of normal or it's above the, the laboratory reference range, you know, maybe 102, 103, something like that. Well, one potential reason, and there's more than one, but we want to focus on cortisol. One potential reason is stress chemistry. What's happening with cortisol in this relationship with, with other elements of how our body needs to respond by creating some kind of a fuel source. So when we look at stress responses, and I'm using that word in a very, very generic um, way, not necessarily thinking about fight or flight, like true threatening situations. But the first response of the brain when the stress response system is engaged is not to produce cortisol. It is to produce what we call catecholamines or epinephrine or norepinephrine, essentially adrenaline. So I'm just going to use the word adrenaline. But that is the initial response of the brain when it perceives some kind of a stress. 
is that we get this adrenaline surge or spike, you know, or bump, <laughs> however you want to talk about it, because it can it can vary in magnitude, which is another aspect of the HPA axis. And and what this adrenaline surge or bump or spike does is it also triggers gluconeogenesis and glycogenolysis. And so now we have kind of three players that we readily understand will increase blood sugar by making new glucose from amino acids or free fatty acids and make uh, or make glucose by breaking down the stored form called glycogen. And, um, you know, what, what these three things do, and, and basically it's adrenaline, cortisol, and glucagon all working together in a coordinated fashion. And, and this adrenaline spike, if you will, is followed after several minutes by a more sustained release of cortisol. So think of adrenaline as kind of a surge, and it might be a little surge, it might be a really big one that results in things like getting shaky or irritable or lightheaded or anxious and nervous and palpitations, that kind of stuff. But that's, again, followed by a more sustained release of cortisol, which is really your secondary response when the stress system gets um, triggered. And, and what the cortisol, sustained release of cortisol does is it serves to amplify that initial impact of adrenaline where we drive gluconeogenesis and glycogenolysis. And the net result is that stress chemistry, stress reactions, adrenaline surges, and cortisol tend to cause blood sugar to rise. How much is going to depend on a complex inter interplay of other things, including what's your starting point. Like if I'm if my fasting blood sugar is 82 and I get an appropriate rise in glucose as a result of a stress response that's controlled and well-regulated, then my blood sugar might rise from 82 to 96. And that's still within the reference range. But if I'm my fasting blood sugar is 98 and I get the same bump, all of a sudden now my blood sugar goes from 98 to 112. And that's a totally different ballgame. And it, and it tells us that there's issues with the fasting blood sugar control mechanism, but also possibly some issues with stress chemistry and stress reactivity. But nevertheless, the you know that net result of some kind of a stress reaction is a, a bump in adrenaline, uh, an increase in cortisol. They work together with glucagon, whatever level that is, to create some elevation in blood sugar. Not that this is an unlimited reaction. Like you're not going to see blood sugar as a result of this mechanism, go higher and higher and higher without any limitation. At some point, the elevated blood sugar is supposed to trigger a release of insulin from the pancreas to start taking that glucose and packing it away into your glycogen storage or converting things, the liver, uh, into triglycerides and then fat and then storing that excess fuel as body fat. And so you see that this there's this very sophisticated system of feedback loops and counter-regulatory actions that help us to increase or decrease blood sugar as needed within controlled limits. Now that's assuming that things are working the way that they're supposed to, which quite often they don't um, for a variety of different reasons. And at some point we'll talk about things that tend to drive abnormal stress chemistry because I think that's an important list for us to go through, at least the fundamental things. So, you know, back to my scenario of somebody who is... Um, on a low carb or a ketogenic diet and, uh, you know, something that reduces blood sugar, reduces insulin or theoretically does so. And they have a high morning fasting blood sugar. So we need to understand why, because it's actually a fairly common phenomena and common enough that it has a name. We call this the dawn phenomena, dawn as in the sun rising. And so the way that your whole 
waking system works is it's basically your brain registering a change from dark to light. And so as the sun comes up and we wake up, our brains register there's increased sunlight and we've transitioned from eyes closed, everything is dark, to eyes open, now it's, it's bright and sunny. There's a mechanism that basically causes the brain to say to the body, hey, wake up, it's time to get up and get moving. And so the brain registers this light change through the eyes, which then triggers a, an increase in the production of adrenaline and cortisol, enough to wake you up and to give you energy because you've been fasting all night long. So enough to get you up and get you moving so that you can start to tackle your day, whatever that means for individual people. But in some people, this system can actually be hypo-responsive, but we're talking in this scenario about where the system might actually be hypersensitive, which can happen in several different places within this regulatory system itself, different conversation. So instead of having just enough gluconeogenesis and glycogenolysis to raise your blood sugar and wake your brain up to tackle a normal morning, when people have these hypersensitive regulatory systems, there is a greater reaction by the brain to waking up and registering sunlight. And all of a sudden we have higher blood sugar than is expected. Basically what ends up happening is that we overshoot our target, even though we're eating low carbs or maybe even being ketosis and we've been fasting all night long, all of a sudden we wake up and we have this higher blood sugar level, higher than expected. And, and so this dawn phenomena, if this describes you or somebody that you know, this dawn phenomena is a really huge clue that you need to look into or have someone help you look into stress chemistry, which is best done through a four-point salivary cortisol test. And that's been around for a very long time, very well validated, despite what you might hear from conventionally trained physicians that saliva testing is invalid, unreliable. That was you know, put to bed by several researchers decades ago, just the message hasn't filtered down to all places in healthcare. But really what, what needs to happen is this investigation into stress chemistry and to correlate the results of that test, which remember tells us about the brain and how the brain is controlling the system. We have to correlate those results, not just to your symptoms throughout the day and night, which I'll describe probably in the next video, but also correlating the results to simple labs like your fasting glucose or your fasting insulin or your status of insulin sensitivity or resistance. And, and if you want to get fancy, even taking a look at your, your serum glucagon levels. So, you know, the bottom line is that cortisol's main job is to increase fuel when we fast or to supply more fuel for a true fight or flight scenario where there's an imminent threat and we need to respond and we need energy to do that. And, and it does this in, in the midst of this complex interplay of your eating and fasting strategies, the balance of adrenaline, glucagon, insulin, your degree of insulin sensitivity or resistance, which happens first in your fat cells, by the way, and the integrity of the entire hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, the dysfunction of which mostly comes from the brain itself, which is highly sensitive to injury, poor development, neurodegeneration, chronic stress, and your inflammatory load. That's how we dysregulate the HPA axis from a brain-based 
perspective. Now that was a mouthful and I'm rated about 15, 18 minutes, something like that. So I'm going to cut this episode short here and uh, we'll be back with the next episode. And we'll talk about how we can use daily symptomatology to get an estimate of what your HPA axis might look like. In an ideal setting, we would always run a four-point cortisol uh, salivary test, and we'd plot it on a graph. We'd be able to visualize what's happening with your cortisol and tell if you're making too much, too little, or just the right amount, or if you have a circadian rhythm abnormality. We'll talk about that in the next part of Inflammation Nation. Thanks for listening. Thank you so much for listening to the Inflammation Nation. If you found this episode valuable, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. Be the first to know when a new episode drops so that you can stay on top of your game. It also helps others like you find the answers they need. And why not head over to my main website, drnoseworthy.com, that's drnoseworthy.com, to explore my personalized functional medicine coaching programs, submit a question to the podcast, maybe take a quiz, or even reach out to me using the contact form that you can find there. We'll see you next time.